Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. After five years of working on his first book, The Seminarian, about Martin Luther King Jr.'s young life, the writer Patrick Parr started daydreaming. He wondered if his literary hero, Kurt Vonnegut, had ever met Dr. King. It turns out he hadn't, but in a Playboy interview Parr discovered, Vonnegut recounted where he was on that awful April night in 1968 that the civil rights leader was murdered. Vonnegut was participating with other big-name authors in a blockbuster literary festival at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, organized on a shoestring by an ambitious young student named John Mrose. At first, Parr thought he might write a magazine article about this pivotal week in American history through the lens of this festival. But then he tracked down Mrose's widow, And, as he told me from his home in Tokyo in a Zoom interview recorded on February 25, 2021, an abundance of source material made it clear he'd found the subject for his next book, One Week in America. I contacted Karen and she said, well, John kept all of the correspondence he had with the uh, authors. And I was blown away and I said, oh no, this is not an article. This is not an article. Um, so that's that was where it started to snowball in a good way. So let's <laughs> get back even one one step further or a couple steps further. You were trying to make a career as a as a um, fiction writer, but you were trying to be a, a Heller or a Vonnegut, right? Is that <laughs> yes, thank and, you for bringing that up. Yes. And say, how did that lead you to writing this book about Dr. King? I... I give all the credit to my wife, honestly. Uh, she's She is someone who asks me questions that really just go all the way through. And I, I realize now, uh, it was back in 2012, I had been grinding and grinding in fiction and writing these probably depressing, morose, melancholy stories that have a, have a bit of Vonnegut in them, but I, w- I was selling them, but, it, you know, it was really just for like $3 or $5 or something like that. It wasn't really uh, enough to support anything. And I, But at the same time, I was starting to notice I, when I was reading fiction, I, w- I wasn't reading it to enjoy the story. I was reading it co- sort of just to devour it. So, And that's it. I know that word is used more as a compliment for a book, but not in this case. It was more like, oh, I've, I've got to read this because everybody else is reading it. Or, <laughs> And I, I'd stopped enjoying it. Uh, th- but one thing I always loved was uh, biography. And whenever I read a biography, it's just it, everything around me just disappears. And I, I sink into this person's world and or the group. And I just I get lost. And my wife one day asked me, she said, uh, what do you enjoy reading? What do you enjoy? It's such a simple question, is it not? <laughs> what, what do you enjoy reading? But the question 
I needed to focus on that. I needed to realize in order to be proud of the books I'm creating, I need to enjoy the process, but also connect with the content. In a nutshell, that's kind of where I started to pivot toward Dr. King. That that story is quite long, um, <laughs> but it starts on the third floor of a public library. I was, uh, after that question, I was, uh, sitting in a this really comfortable chair and i remember i made a list of 40 people who had a i thought had some influence and i wanted to analyze their lives at the age of 22 because i think the age of 22 is very influential for a lot of people it's like an intersection of life especially in the last 200 years i made a list i realized uh, dr king there wasn't enough information for him uh to even make a portrait at that time, and I, I was, I was shocked. I, I thought that was, in some way, disrespectful. But also, I thought it was an opportunity for me to. Uh, I realized at that time that I was kind of a nobody in nonfiction, but I sort sort of started to pile up information and uh, reached out to other authors. That's that that's key for anybody who's listening to this and wants to become a biographer, reaching out to other biographers is key. It's uh, vital. And also reaching out to um, archive centers. You, you just, you don't realize what you'll find until you start the search. So you, you're ruminating and you, how did you attach them in Notre Dame in 1968 for somebody? Yes. And, and as a way to get into the festival. And so Vonnegut is in, uh, is on the Notre Dame campus and it's April 4th, 1968. And he's with Joseph Heller and he and Joseph Heller have never really met each other. If they have, it's only briefly in passing, but they've become friends at this festival. And that, that starts a lifelong friendship that I document in the book. And Vonnegut and Heller sort of bond over this one moment because on April 4th, Joseph Heller is giving his uh, presentation or his talk uh, at the literary festival. And maybe two hours right before his presentation, he hears about Dr. King being killed. And it's something where he's, he doesn't know really what to do because he's going to, he's about to read a section in Catch-22 that is uh, the most gory, the most bloody, uh, it's the Snowden section, if you're familiar with Catch-22. And it's something that, it, he, he just doesn't know how to address because this, we, we have to remember in technology, nobody has their smartphones in the audience, right? This is 1968. It's all almost all hearsay at this point. Some people are hearing from phone calls uh, that they made prior to the event, but it's really maybe five people in the audience know what's happening. So everybody's jammed into this event and uh, Vonnegut is sitting there and they decide that they're going to bring it up, but kind of try try to make it in this um, nat as natural way as possible. <laughs> but then this one person comes up right before uh, Joseph Heller is about to speak, and he said, "Well, I just like to let everybody know that Martin Luther King has been shot." And <laughs> there's this huge gasp. Oh, and now here comes Joseph Heller, and <laughs> and Heller comes up to the microphone and. He doesn't really know what to do and he's just 
he, he's a uh, kind of out of his mind. He, he goes, he says, Oh my God. Oh my God. I, I, re I really wish Shirley was here. Shirley was his wife at the time. And he ends up getting through it. And his reading sounds very philosophical. And that, that moment, sorry to answer your question in a roundabout way, that was what Kurt Vonnegut mentioned in the Playboy interview, this moment with Joseph Heller. And Vonnegut was scheduled to present the next day, so on April 5th. So they, they, he told this story, and that's kind of where I made that connection. So, so you made that connection, and you thought this would be an article. And right. let's talk a little bit more about how you realized that there was an entire book here. And sure. I, I can completely see why you did, and you did it. But um, that that scary revelation that there that there is no way to collapse this story that it needs the years that it took you to get to the point where we're at right now. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Yes, yes. Uh, well, it starts with all the interviews I started to uh, um, complete. Once I talked to Karen Karen Linehan Rose, uh, she she gave me those. Uh, those letters, those letters that uh, were exchanged between John Rose uh, and also the authors such as Ralph Ellison and uh, Joseph Heller and also Norman Mailer. All, all of these men had been in constant contact with him. I think what really did it though for me was like what, when I realized I needed to encapsulate the entire week was Granville Hicks. This is a man who probably been ignored by history for the most part, but he was so influential in the 60s and 70s as a literary critic for the Saturday Review. Hicks really was pulled in by Rose to report the event. And it was Granville Hicks's reporting in the Saturday Review he did a. He also did a day-by-day -day analysis of the uh, festival, and that to me, I, I said, "Oh my lord, there has to be so much more to this." And I went to the Syracuse University archives. They have Granville Hicks's papers there. Lo and behold, I found a schedule that Bro John Rose had sent to Granville Hicks, hour by hour, uh, showing what was happening. And I thought, wow, here it is. It's all laid out. Uh, I just need to complete interviews, uh, newspaper microfilm, and so on. You just, you just, <laughs> just, right. But, but let's step back also again, um, for somebody who, because I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to explain the conference and then explain all of the tentacles that it sent you off on how you did that, how you achieved that? I think the big part was for from Rose, the way uh, Karen described it to me and uh, when we talked, and he wants to think big at this point. He's he's an 18 year old. It's it's in 1967. And the first literary festival has concluded. And uh, this they say, here's here's the account for your uh, here's the your Here's the money that's in the account. Good luck. Uh, you're now the chairman of the literary festival that has just been created. And he looks and it's $2.72. And, and he says, well, what, what can I do with this? Obviously, uh, he needed to start raising some funds. But 
what is so fascinating about this time is how direct they were to the writers. For, for example, they were writing letters to them first, and then suddenly they could call them. And then if they couldn't reach them, they go to their home <laughs> <laughs> and they knock on their door. Right. It, it, that to me is an, such an incredible thing that I guess in this day and age, it, it wouldn't happen. But you want to think that it could if it must. <laughs> yeah, It's a unique moment in time story, because now I might sleuth out Vonnegut's email address or something, you know, or the equivalent, but, you know, or Facebook page or Twitter, I would probably tweet the famous author I was trying to invite to my conference. But the, the image of these young men running around stalking, uh, right. they're not even stalking. They were not. Oh, no, yeah. that was that was close. I, 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 I'll, I'll, uh, I don't think I'm uh, saying anything bad if to say Rose kind of stalked Norman Mailer in New York. So I, I think, I mean, it wasn't anything illegal or any, there wasn't some sort of restraining order. But uh, I think Rose wanted to bring together a festival that reflected the times, uh, the counterculture at the time, but also to his credit, he brought in William Buckley as well. He wanted he wanted a, a sort of a, a representation of both sides at this festival. So he was conscientious of the left and the right and that discussion, but he still had no idea. He had no idea that, of what was about to transpire. He didn't know about Lyndon Johnson, of course, uh, who just completely breaks apart all of his plans on March 31st by making his announcement that he won't be seeking re-election. And then uh, several days later when King is assassinated, it's uh, such an in, such a storm of events and he's created, it the, it's a perfect timing situation. He's created all of the this festival, this week-long festival with all of these names. And then suddenly this these two big events just shock everybody. From From the research point of view, those events obviously are extremely well documented. You had a list, and you're going to kill me for saying this, but you had you had a list of all the people involved in this festival, beginning with the organizer's wife, who provides you with this fabulous treasure trove, which is amazing. You didn't even know it existed, and then basically you make a list of all those people, and then you just go around and research the tentacles, right? That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which of course is enormous, but it, you had this, you had a, a blueprint yes. and now you just had to go figure it out, write a book. That's, that's, that's right. That's right. Uh, the, the 20, the 20 people, 20 plus people I interviewed, they, they helped uh, define the structure of this book. They were telling me what was important to them at that time. And I, I sort of, I stayed with that as much as I could. That That's the pulse of the book. It's, it's funny, way early in this process, the title of this book was Pulse of a Nation. And I, I didn't like it. I, I, yeah, I, it was a long story about how that was changed, but it was about the pulse of the country at that time, because you had all of these things intersecting each other. And I thought, well, let's let's take its pulse. <laughs> let's see how it's going. So that that was how I tried to stay true to each day of the week. 
I mean, what what's happening in that world? Can I can I honor it in that way? So sorry if I'm getting off track here. No, no, no. It's really helpful, and I think for anybody listening, you know, it it is a really excellent conceit, not in a bad way at all. That you that you're looking at this fraught moment in our nation's history. Um, in the world's history, and by zeroing in on this seemingly unlikely event that allows you to illuminate the the wider world around you. So it's different than writing a book about, let's write a book about 1968 and all the crazy things that went down. Um, it, it's it's genius. It's really, and I can see, and, and I, I hope you understand that I'm kidding when I, I don't mean to be reductive by saying just a list, because no, no. in a way that's the perfect um, that's what you have to do as a biographer, right? You make these lists and you, you know, see who's alive, who's not, who's got papers, who doesn't, and you mine those. And then right. it falls somehow in your hands into the order that it has arrived at. Right. Yes. When, when I received those letters from Karen, I, I felt again, like, like I did with my first book. And I think what a lot of biographers feel that there is this enormous sense of responsibility. I, I have to not only get this out there, but not in an irresponsible way, which is for some, some people on the internet, it's so tempting to just throw this up on the web and say, look, I'm, I'm the first, uh, that is such a painful thing to see whenever I see it is, oh, you should have framed this. This needs to be framed. This needs to have some sort of historical context. Uh, that's where, that's the world we're living in right now with technology. It's just, everything is being thrown up so quickly that uh, it's, it's hard to process. So getting off track, aren't I? No, not but, at all. No, no. And that's what you're saying is why I think many of us, especially, you know, refugees from journalism are drawn to this world because you can't do that and you do have to ruminate and you are you are the person who had this middle of the night connection. You saw something in, in one story that led you to an entire book, whereas somebody else might have read it and not gone down that path um and might have taken a different one or might have just gone back to sleep <laughs> or something that's so, right that's so right. um you know that's what's i think so exciting is that where that germ of an idea comes from when it isn't a clear-cut obvious i'm going to write a book about my father the fighter pilot or this this book was uh, i keep telling my wife this this book was a triple layer cake and here's kind of how it how i explain it when I was putting it together, I, I thought, well, God, there are so many names in this book. There, It is so stuffed. How can I make this clear and enjoyable to read? It, it was, it almost seemed impossible to me. I was writing on the backs of receipts. I was writing on little pieces of paper everywhere I went. I was just sitting down in random places, kind of daydreaming of how to put March 31st, 1968 together. And I needed to follow the the three main plots, and that would be Dr. King. So I, I had previous research on Dr. King. So March 31st, April 1st, uh, every day should have a little bit of King as sort of a constant throughout the story. And Lyndon Johnson's uh, announcement. So that should also be a plot line that goes through. And that everything else would be Notre Dame. It would be the literary festival. And that's the... Uh, that's the cake. That's the cake part. And I 
thought to myself, if I can just stay with that. But then, Lisa, here's here's where it just blew up again. All of these events, there are events that are happening during that week that uh, there's a, there is something that happened in Richmond, Indiana, for example, on April 6th. So I'm trying to complete this week, but all of these huge events are coming in. And if I don't write about this, I'm, I know I'm going to get somebody who says, how could you not include this? And I <laughs> thought, oh, in Richmond, there was an explosion that killed 40 people. And I thought I have to chart this. This this is a moment that just happened two and a half hours away from the Notre Dame campus on the same exact day. I was having a hard time putting all of these events together just on one day. But here's where the this this switch really flipped is I said, what if I write in the present tense? And that was how uh, everything started to become much easier. I know when I say present tense, if for anybody who's listening, they're going to say, oh, how could you write in present tense? That's that's not a, there are, there are stories that need it. There are stories that uh, have to get on that sort of conveyor belt of voice <laughs> that the present tense is. And that's, that's what got me through it. And of course, there are so many painful sacrifices to make during that process, but when you have uh, a book that is overstuffed with events that you you have no choice but to move forward, uh, it's really, it was a saving grace. How did you know when you were done? Well, let's see. I think that would be when I was walking in my park and I didn't know where I was. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that happens. That no, happens. Joke. no, no, no. When, when did I... Uh, when did I know? I, I knew probably there, there's this letter that Wright Morris writes in the book uh, is very personal uh, to me. I, I love Wright Morris, the writer. He is unbelievably ignored. And there's this one letter that he wrote right after Dr. King was killed. And when I read it, I was very moved by it. And I thought it was so timeless, its message, that I thought, Okay, once I finish this part of the book, that, that, that to me, there'll be, I can begin to emotionally remove myself from this, this world this week. And I would say, once I finish that part, I, I thought, well, yeah, I'll begin the revision process, but this, I was satisfied at that point. That's Patrick Parr, author of One Week in America, the 1968 Notre Dame Festival and a Changing Nation, published in March 2021 by Chicago Review Press. Now, Parr reads from his book at the 2021 Biographers International Festival, held online beginning May 14, 2021. The following takes place April 4, 1968, and involves James Baldwin. Across the country in Palm Springs, California, Maya Angelou's friend James Baldwin sits by the pool of a luxurious home. He calls the neighborhood a millionaire's graveyard and has been sent to this house by a producer to continue work on a film script of Malcolm X's autobiography. Billy D. Williams, perfect in Baldwin's mind for the role of Malcolm, sits nearby. The locale is meant to relax his artistic spirit, 
but the sunshine as bland as milk and honey, the eerie streets paved with gold, and the thunderous silence of wealth make it very difficult to tackle Malcolm's gritty, darkened soul. A reporter comes to the home and chats with Baldwin and Billy Dee about the film version of Malcolm. In this climate, talking feels much better than writing. So Baldwin charms the reporter and feels in command of the film's future vision. Baldwin acts, quote, in charge of the film, despite what the studio actually wants him to do, which is not to speak publicly about it. Still, Baldwin divulges a few of the film's details as they drink by the swimming pool. After Billy Dee and Baldwin guide the reporter back to her car, they return feeling as if the film is theirs. Billy Dee jumps into the pool and begins singing, quote, African improvisations to the sound of Aretha Franklin as a nearby record player blares her music. Someone, a butler perhaps, has brought a phone out to the pool. At around 3.30 p.m. Pacific time, it rings. Baldwin picks up and hears the voice of actor and friend David Moses on the other line. Moses exclaims, Jimmy, Martin's just been shot. The gravity of the sentence stuns Baldwin. He's not dead yet, but it's a head wound. So for the next several hours, Baldwin feels lost. He weeps, but more, quote, in helpless rage than in sorrow. Two days later, Baldwin leaves behind the divisive helplessness that exists between Palm Springs and Watts and flies to Atlanta to attend King's funeral. One week in America, the 1968 Notre Dame Festival and a Changing Nation, published by Chicago Review Press. That's author Patrick Parr. You can hear more about bio on our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio. Bio.